Wow. <laughs> that was uh, our worship band's rendition of U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Uh, I remember when the song came out in 1987, part of the Joshua Tree album. And yes, I know, I'm seriously dating myself. Now, I asked the worship band to play the song because this song is about spiritual yearning. Especially the climatic ending of the song where Bono talks about his faith. Um, and the, the lyrics reads like this. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you lose the chains. Carry the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I used to work at InterVarsity, and I remember this conversation I had with this colleague of mine, and he told me, this song captures the mindset of so many young people that he works with. And, and we're talking about Christ followers, people who, who go to church, they listen to sermons, they, they, they sing worship songs, uh, they, they serve and volunteer, and they give to the church. But when you get to know them, when you get to the place where they feel safe to talk, they say things like, wow, there's something missing. I feel like God's a million miles away. I feel like I'm just going through the motions and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Something's missing. Now, here at church, sometimes it can feel like just everybody just rah, rah for God. You're like, oh, read the Bible, yeah! Praying every day, yeah! Building a community to reach a community, yeah! The reality is very different. The reality is that most of us go through periods, long periods of just going through the motions, where it feels like, I'm not growing. Nothing's really happening. God feels a million miles away. And even though I believe, I feel something is missing. Can you relate to this at all? This feeling that something is missing, the feeling that God is far, far away, that's what we're going to talk about today. But before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Um, I want to greet everybody who's joining us right now, whether you're in Madison or Dane County, Wisconsin, around the country or around the world. Uh, a special hello to the Chinese speakers joining in, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here. Now, we are in our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms, and we're calling it If I'm Honest, because we're reading these Psalms as honest prayers. So uh, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Psalm 42. If you have your Bible, Psalm 42. And uh, now the book of Psalms has 150 poems in it. And, uh, and these Psalms convey different thoughts, different topics, different emotions. Many of these Psalms express worship, thanksgiving, praise. Psalm 42 is not one of those Psalms. Psalm 42 is a very honest prayer from somebody who feels very far from God. Psalm 42. For the director of music, a mesquil of the sons of Korach. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? 
So this psalm is written by one of the sons of Korah, and he is describing his experience. And he says he's panting for God like a deer pants for water. Now the focus of the comparison here is not on the deer, it's on the panting. Now we have to remember we're not in Wisconsin where there's just water everywhere. No, this is ancient Palestine, a dry parched land where sometimes the watering holes, they dry up and the wild animals, they get desperate. They pant because they're dying. The image in your head should be a deer lying on its side, breathing heavily because it's dying of thirst. And the psalmist says, I'm like that deer. I feel desire for God so intense, I feel like I'm dying, but I can't find God. When can I go and meet with God? I can't find him. So what's the result? Well, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, he's not doing well. So he's crying all day long, and people are noticing. People go, well, this guy's way off. God's not with him. Now, before I keep going, I'm just going to ask the question here. How many of you can relate to this? How many of you have felt a desire for God so intense that you feel like you're dying? That's like a physical thirst. How many of you have ever felt so separated, so abandoned by God, that you cry all day long because you can't feel his presence? You can't find him. I bring this up because the psalmist is tapping into something foundational to our faith. And I don't want us to miss this, and and that is this. Your relationship with God is something you experience. You can sense God's presence and his absence. Now, I know that raises all kinds of questions, like, how can God be absent? Okay, okay, hold off, I'll I'll get there. But I'm bringing this up because I think for some of us, Psalm 42 makes no sense. It's describing experiences that we have no ideas about. And it's not our fault. Because all of us, we come out of different church traditions. And um, and in some church traditions, two things define the shape of what it means to follow Jesus. Believing the right things, and doing the right things. The theological big words would be orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Correct belief and correct behavior. Now don't get me wrong. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, they are important to our Christian faith, but it's missing that critical component, our experience with God. That's my story. I came out of a church in Southern California where they, all they taught, talked about was believing the right things and doing the right things. So it wasn't on anybody's radar, the whole idea about you know, experiencing God. It, just, it wasn't taught. It wasn't mentioned. I had to go away to college when I run into somebody, and they say, oh, I experienced God. And I'm like, huh? That's weird. And then when I got serious about following Jesus, I started reading the Bible. And I looked in the Bible, and, and the people in the Bible, they don't just believe the right things and do the right things. In fact, they frequently believe the wrong things and do the wrong things, but they have an experience with God. The people in the Bible experience this person-to-person type of friendship with God. It's experiential, it's relational, and nowhere more so than in the book of Psalms. This is a book that is chock full of people's reflections, people's songs, people's prayers, people's contemplations that captures the various dimensions of the different kinds of relationships that people have with God. Psalm 42 is one of these. Psalm 42 is somebody's meditation 
It's somebody's prayer journal. It's somebody's inner struggle. And for some of us, the temptation would be to say, well, this is part of the Bible, so let's turn it into some kind of a theological proposition so we can learn it. Resist that temptation. Instead, what we have here is somebody who's a fellow pilgrim on the journey. Somebody who is actually a follower of the same God that we follow. And this person is vulnerable enough to open up their hearts to us, to show us what's going on in his relationship with God. And what we see is the person who experiences God. And now they feel like God's far away. They can't sense him anymore. And he's doing very badly. He's hurting. So let's, let's stay with his experience with God. Let's see what he does. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. The first thing to notice about verse 4 is that the verbs, they're not I remember and I pour out. It's, it's actually, or actually let me remember and let me pour out. That's the Hebrew verb form. So what's going on here? Well, the psalmist knows he's doing badly spiritually. He's, he's, he's parched, he's dry, he's far from God, he's in bad shape. So what does he say? He says, let me remember. Let me remember. What he's going to do is he's going to use his memory to get himself to a better place. He's going to use his memory. He's going he's to let his memory fully pour out. And he, he chose a particular memory. He chose one in which he was part of this large crowd, and they're, and they're walking. It's a kind of a festival, and they're marching toward the temple. And it is a joyous crowd. People are singing and dancing and shouting, and he is part of this crowd, and there's joy and exuberance, and he wants to use that memory of that joy and exuberance to do what? Well, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. See what's going on? He's using his memory. He's going, I'm going to play this wondrous memory I have here, almost like a whole movie in my own head. And I'm going to use that as the basis to ask myself this question. Why are you downcast? I mean, like, come on. Snap out of it. Come out of it already. It's okay now. Have hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Okay, does that work? Verse six, my soul is downcast within me. Okay, it didn't work. So what does he do next? Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. All of a sudden, we jumped into an ancient Near Eastern geography B. Uh, raise your hand if you know where Mount Mazar is. No, 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 put your hand down. It's a trick question. Scholars don't know where Mount Mazar is. But, but don't worry about this. That's not the point. Don't get caught in, ge in geography trivia. Okay? It's really, really simple. He's in a bad place spiritually. He tries to rem remember some good events that happened. It didn't help. So what does he do? He climbs a mountain. He goes into nature. He goes camping. He does a spiritual retreat. He goes to a place where he can experience the grandeur of God's creation. He goes looking for God. And now we get to verse 7. And this is just beautiful, beautiful Hebrew poetry. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. So 
He climbs up a mountain, and now the roars of the waterfalls are echoing all around him. And he says, deep calls to deep. The, um, the word deep, to home, um, is the chaotic deep of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's a primordial force of chaos. So what he's describing is these chaotic waters all around him, and they're calling to each other back and forth and back and forth, and he's caught in the middle of the sight and sound, and he says, all your waves and breakers, they sweep over me. Do you remember going to the beach as a kid? You're like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, you run right into the water, you go in waist high, it's so much fun, you're jumping around, the water's coming, and then all of a sudden the big wave hits and just knocks you over. In an instant, right, bright sunshine, blue sky, change into watery, muddy, sandy mess. And sounds are muffled. And what are you feeling as you're trying to stand up from under, under the water and trying to get your balance? What are you feeling? Fear, like panic, disorientation, like I'm about to drown. That's the feeling that the psalmist is talking about right now. He's expressing this intense feeling of fear, of panic, of disorientation, the sensation that he's about to drown. The psalmist climbs a mountain, but instead of finding God, he finds the chaos of his mind and the maelstrom of thoughts and emotions, and they overwhelm him and they threaten him. Then we get to verse 8. By day, Yahweh directs his love. When you see the word Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. By day, Yahweh directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, many commentators say, well, this verse is rather unexpected. What is it doing here? Um, and they say, like, well, maybe the psalmist is remembering again. He's remembering something good in the past. I think that's possible. I think it's possible. But I don't go that direction because I think the psalmist is being very realistic. He's describing his real experience. He's describing his chaotic spiritual state. And for those of us who, you know, who've gone through situations like this and periods like this, you know it's not all one thing or, or the other. It's not all up or all down. It's up and down. It's, it's off and on. And so what's happening is he climbs the mountain to find God. What he finds is chaos that threatens him. He feels like he is disoriented. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a period of peace. He senses that Yahweh directs his love and that God's song is with him. Amidst the chaos, he's found a perch, a place where now he's able to pray. And so he says, I'm offering a prayer to the God of my life. Now, God of my life, that, that's a fascinating phrase. It's, it's a unique in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. Um, now, now, the Bible has many different names for God, and many of them in, are in, the, in the, uh, the, structure, the, the structure of El something, like, like El Elohei Israel, that'd be El, the God of Israel, or El Elyon, God Most High, or El Shaddai, a God Almighty or a God who is sufficient, or El Chai, the living God. Now, 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 most of these names, they're communicating something about God's attributes, God's power, God's majesty, God's, God's omniscience, God's transcendence, something wondrous about God. But not the phrase we have in Psalm 42. The phrase we have here calls forth a smaller God. It's El Hayai, the God of my life. 
because sometimes God can get a little too big. It's kind of weird for me to be saying that because one of my frustrations with the American evangelical churches is that we have a tendency to shrink God down to size. We make him all about us, about our lives. So every chance I get, I say, hey, the Bible, the Bible is focused on the kingdom of God. God establishing his justice, his dominion, his reign over the entire earth. That's what the Bible is about. However, here I am, I'm preaching Psalm 42, so I got to go where the text takes me. And the text says, this is a psalm about the individual. It's the cry of the heart from somebody who needs a smaller God. He needs El Chayai. He needs the God of my life. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about the all-powerful God of Psalm 104, who creates and sustains the universe. The week before, Pastor Matt talked about the omnipresent, omniscient, in-your-face God of Psalm 139. And those psalms, they encourage people. I mean, it's exciting to to hear about a God who is big and powerful and who knows everything and can, can take care of anything. It's exciting. It's awesome. But that's not how everybody responds. When Chris talks about going to nature because nature inspires them to worship God, some of us, when we go to nature, we don't see God. We just see the mosquitoes. For some of us, God can get too big, too distant, too majestic, too veiled a mystery, too far away for us to connect with mentally and emotionally. So here's Psalm 42. A psalmist in his desperation calls out for a smaller God. Not the creator God of the universe, not the God of Israel. He calls out for El Chayah. He calls for the God of my life. And he says, God of my life, I am now going to pray and I need to hear what I have to say. And then he prays. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why have you forgotten me? That's an amazing prayer. It is an honest prayer. It's the kind of prayer that I don't think most of us know how to pray because we don't have that kind of depth of relationship with God. From the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist says, you know what? There's something wrong between me and God. Something's off between this rela- with this relationship. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember. I'm going to bring to mind this exciting thing in the past that was really joyful. Maybe that'll change me. Well, that didn't work. Okay, I'm going to go climb a mountain and experience God's creation. Well, well, that didn't work. And at some point, he reaches this revelation. He says, you know what? It can't just be me. God, you have to show up. You have to be here. You have to be with me. You have to start doing the kind of things that I expect from a God who is my rock, the God who is the God of my life. Where are you? You have forgotten me. I know theology. God can't forget people. I know that. The psalmist knows that. The psalmist is describing his experience. The psalmist is telling us that he feels like he's been forgotten by God. And it is critical for us to understand that. That the psalmist prays what he truly thinks and what he truly feels. Now some of you are like, 
Why, what's the point? Why, why pray that? God already knows what I think and what I feel. Now, you are right that God knows what you think and what you feel. But there's a world of difference between him knowing it and you telling it to him. Here's an example. Let's say I keep a journal and write, I write in it my deepest, most private thoughts and feelings. Now, is there a difference between me taking you aside one-on-one, individually, privately, and I share with you what's going on with me, what I've written down? Is there a difference between that versus you going to my journal and just reading it? You see, both ways, you know what's going on with me. But in the first way, you're my close friend, you're my confidant. The second way, you're just a stalker. You see, it's not about knowledge. It's about relationship. Praying has never been about telling God something he does not know. But rather, when we open our hearts and start praying the things we actually think and feel, our relationship with God flourishes. It comes alive. And so the psalmist says to God, why have you forgotten me? Verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, if you, if you read this verse, you, you'll notice, if you look up, you see in verse 5, verse 11 is virtually identical word for word with verse 5. Meaning of that? No change. No progress. He is still downcast. The verb there, downcast, really means to melt away, to, to dissolve away. So what he's saying is his, 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 his soul, his appetite, his, his vitality for life is dissolving away. And at the same time, he's feeling disturbed. The Hebrew, Hebrew verb there actually means to be in turmoil or to be in an uproar, to be perturbed. So in addition to feeling like he's dissolving away, you add to that the sensation of inner turmoil and wordless rage. That's where the psalmist is at. And that's where the psalm ends. Now, if you look down at your NIV footnote, it'll say that some Hebrew manuscripts combine Psalm 42 with Psalm 43. Now, I do think Psalm 43 is written by the same author. He's using the same structure, but he's talking about a different topic, a different theme. I think Psalm 42 ends here at verse 11. And it is an ending that we're not used to. We're used to endings that have resolution. Something has, has to happen. Something has to be tied up neatly in a bow. And what we, get, what we have here is he starts off in spiritual darkness and he ends in spiritual darkness. And in between, he exercises three spiritual disciplines. He remembers, he climbs a mountain, and he prays an honest prayer that says, God, why have you forgotten me? And then nothing. Nothing changes. A couple questions that come up readily. Um, number one, how can God forgive? I mean, forget. I mean, how can God be absent? How can God really not be around? Right? And, and the answer is pretty simple, uh, straightforward. Um, we're not talking about the underlying reality. We're talking about his experience. The underlying reality is that the moment we follow Jesus, we are joined into the body of Christ. We are one with him so that we are never far from God. However, 
sometimes it does feel that way. Which leads to the second question. Why does God take away from us the sense of his presence? And that's a much harder question, and that's a question that Psalm 42 does not answer. Instead, Psalm 42 teaches us that it does happen. That people who worship God sometimes go through periods of time where they feel this profound sense of abandonment, of this deep spiritual darkness, where they feel like God is nowhere to be found. And this happens to people in the Bible, including Jesus on the cross who cries out, Elo, Elo, Lama Zabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It also happens to people not in the Bible. Christ followers through the centuries, those who write about their spiritual journey, they describe the sense of feeling abandoned by God again and again and again and again. How are you guys doing with this psalm? Um, for some of us, I think, you know, those of us who are thinking about following Jesus but haven't made the decision yet, or you're, or you're new to following Jesus, I might be telling you something new. You might be learning something new here. You might be thinking, wait a minute, really? People who follow God feel abandoned by God? Yes, it happens to lots of people for long periods of time. And the reason we don't talk about it very much is because as Americans, we have a triumphalistic view of our faith. We talk about praise and thanksgiving and, 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 and glory and, and, and answered prayers. And when we do talk about problems, we talk about problems with simple solutions. You know, do X, Y, and Z and you're done. What is the solution for the sense of being abandoned by God? Where are the easy one, two, three steps to get God to show up? So for those of you who are kind of new to following Jesus or, or, or thinking about it, this is good to know. This is something you need to know about because it's coming up, right? You, you might experience this, and you won't be thrown for a loop when it happens. And that you now know that, that the spiritual journey that is ever onward and upward, that is deeper and deeper in intimacy with God, greater and greater faith every day, that's not anybody's experience in the Bible or elsewhere. And it's no good pretending otherwise. Now, for those of us who have experienced something like this before or are going through it right now, maybe you're at a place where you just feel like, man, God is like a million miles away. And some of you, you, you might even remember the past. Remember, oh yeah, when I was high, in high school or in college, man, I felt so alive with the presence of God. I feel so excited about Jesus. And now, oh yeah, I'm supposed to read the Bible. Oh man, I feel kind of guilty about that. Or maybe even the guilt's gone. I go to church because I'm supposed to. I hope they don't talk about anything I'm struggling with because I don't want to deal with it. I feel nothing. I'm just going through the motions. <laughs> if that's where you are right now, know this, that you are far from alone. I know Psalm 42 may not describe your situation precisely because, Psalm, because, first of all, no one can describe your situation precisely. Your relationship with God is unique. But what Psalm 42 does for us, it, it tells us that many people feel far from God. Many people far, feel far from God. And Psalm 42, we have to remember, is part of the Bible. 
okay? And from our theology, we believe that God inspired the writing of Psalm 42. That means God inspired somebody to write about his experience of feeling abandoned and forgotten by God. God wants Psalm 42 in the Bible. He wants to tell us the realities of the spiritual journey with him. But more than that, Psalm 42 gives us language to talk about what we're going through. I pant for God like a deer panting for water. God, where can I go to find you? Your waves, your breakers, they sweep over me. I feel like I'm underwater. Why have you forgotten me? More than just language, the psalmist gives us his journey, the things he tries to do. He tries to remember the past, the good old days with God. It didn't work. He does a spiritual retreat on the mountains. That didn't work. I'm telling you, though, that prayer. You know, a prayer that begins with, God, you feel a million miles away. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened, but I feel like you've forgotten me. I think that's a good prayer to pray during this time. But finally, the psalm offers some hope. The psalmist says to himself twice, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I will yet praise him. I can't do it now, but I know I will get there. Why? Because I have hope in God. Now, I know that may not sound very satisfying. It's not supposed to. Psalm 42 wasn't written to answer questions. It was written to give us a, a brutally honest snapshot of somebody's spiritual journey. And the response is not to reduce the theology or turn into step one, two, three. Rather, it's to, to meditate. I don't know if you remember in the first sermon of this series, I, I spoke on Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 calls us to meditate on Yahweh's teaching. And biblical meditation is different from meditation in the world. It's not to empty your mind. No, 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 no. The word hagah, to meditate, means to mutter, to moan, to struggle with what you're reading. And Psalm 42 is written for meditation. There's so much there to chew on. And so we're going to do a little bit of that right now. Uh, so Pastor Matt is going to come up. And he is going to lead us into a time of meditation and contemplation.